Longhorn Nation. He's going for the corner. He's got it. Texas is back, folks. Oh, yes. Oh, Christ. We're back. Welcome back, one and all, to the Fire Steve Sarkeesian podcast, your overreactionary Texas Longhorns football fan podcast. My name is Josh, joined today, as usual, by my co-host Noah, returning to the show for the first time, uh, I guess since we did our Hot Ones episode way back in the day. Uh, feels like a long time, uh, really eons ago, if you will. So, Noah, how how you doing? It's it's been a while. It has been a while, but it's good to be back. You know, I hope that we're having a pretty mild show today here, since there's no hot wings, so we can't do hot takes. So we're gonna have to keep it, you know, cool, calm, collected. We don't need cold takes either. No cold takes exposed. Just you know, let's have a clean pod today, Josh. A, a, a nice set of lukewarm sort of room temperature takes, I think, is. The goal right here, especially uh, after, you know, Steven's performance on the last episode was so well received by so many people. Very hot take to the negative side. So we'll try and sort of even it out for anyone who really took that much offense to it. Not to say that Steven won't be back. It was kind of funny to see how many people that annoyed. Uh, yeah, I'm here to at least alleviate some concerns. I'm not going full doomer. I'm not we're not going to win the Big 12. I'm not we're not going to win the national championship. You're not going to get any of that from me. But you know, we can we can set some reasonable expectations uh, going into Sark's second year, which which is typical for the Texas fan base, right? That's what we're used to doing. We're certainly not an overreactionary fan base that inspired the entire podcast, right? Just what what do Texas fans know best, and that's how to be calm, cool, and collected in the hot seat. Just for a, a quick sort of thing, since this is going to be sort of a season preview episode of the team, I guess to give sort of a little bit of a look ahead on what the podcast is going to be looking like. I, I think due to personal schedule stuff, we're going to have you around sporadically, not going to be as consistent every week. Like I said, Steven will be back in, in some capacity, probably. Uh, I guess it really depends how, how fired up the takes are going to be following each game. And I'm hoping to do something more interesting for the Bama game, win or lose. I've got a few ideas for some content that we can generate for that for a podcast. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting, going to be a lot of stuff in flux, but I think we're going to have some good stuff to talk about for sure. Uh, Also, before we get going, wanted to give a shout-out to 104.7 ESPN Radio in Austin. Uh, If you missed it a few weeks back, I, for whatever reason, got invited to call into a radio show. Like, I was not just some idiot who doesn't know what he's talking about, but... Yeah, the Almost Sports Show had me on a couple weeks ago talking Texas football, just sort of what my expectations are. And really my uh, my big takeaway from that is I am now a Texas football influencer. I called that Steve Sarkeesian should pick Quinn Ewers, and within like less than 24 hours, I think that was official. So I don't know. I think Sark was obviously listening to me. So that's that's the level of influence this podcast has built up now, Noah. Well, two things. First off, Josh, don't, don't be too hard on yourself. You're not... Just some idiot that doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, we always prep. We always have notes. You're just some idiot that kind of knows what he's talking about, but that does know. Okay, so just don't be too hard on yourself there. Uh, (laughs) That's true. That's true. There was some prep time that went into the radio show, so I won't pretend like it was completely out of pocket. Well, I just mean we have, like, on the podcast, we have our own notes that we always have. But uh, second thing, you know, you called yours, and some other people in the Texas space were really leaning into Hudson Card right before the announcement. So... Uh, you know, we won't get too much into that because their source was stuffed, whereas yours was more just what you wanted to happen, what you thought should happen. 
I relied on the number one source that everyone needs to trust, and that's that's your gut. So I, I really trusted that. Whereas uh, if you work for Orange Bloods and collect people's money and have sources either lie to you or who are just outright wrong and report with a from a position of authority, like you know what you're talking about, it's a lot more embarrassing than me just sort of you know shooting from the hip a little bit. I have I have a quick anecdote that I want to share. It's not super important, but I think that it helps frame how some of this information gets out. So there are all sorts of people that are connected to the program, right? Like everybody has their favorite like message board insider. They might know who they are. They might know how they're connected. Uh, but I have a friend that at one point was a source for one of the 995 sites. I'm not going to say which one because that's not important, but he was a source. The reason he was a source is because when we were in college, he had a buddy that worked on the film team for the university he like operated the cameras and like film practice and stuff. And so obviously he got to watch every practice since he was one of the guys filming them. And that buddy would then text like what he saw to my friend. And then my friend would share it with one of the sites and he got to like kind of be a source and he got a free subscription and stuff. So just always, you know, you got to remember who has access and who wants to talk. And I guess it's just one of those things you always got to kind of be wary of what you're reading because that guy did have, uh, some takes like Kirk Johnson looks like Adrian Peterson. That turned out well. Yeah. <laughs> and so in general, I don't, I don't know. I'm just throwing out there because I think a lot of the guys will get their information about what's happening right. Uh, but then you got to put a little bit more thought into whether what they're saying as far as like the analysis makes sense. Because the analysis could just be some, you know, 21 year old. Yeah, some 21-year-old who's hearing it from someone else who watched practice, and then it gets into an Orange Bloods or a 24-7 or an Inside Texas's hands, and suddenly, you know, it's gospel after being passed down through a game of telephone. Exactly. Don't trust anyone is the lesson, and don't pay money to have them tell you that kind of information. <laughs> yeah, because then Kirk O'Grimes breaks his ankle in the preseason, and, and it's, all, it's all going to shit, so... Be smart with your money, kids. So talking expectations for this season, obviously, Steven and I did a little bit of talking about that, but sort of on an individual basis, I think we're going to start off with that. We'll also get into sort of our overall season expectations as well for the whole team and and what that looks like, what what kind of the, the schedule, how about all that stacks up. But got obviously a lot of fresh faces, a lot of returning faces, just a, a lot of interesting parts and pieces. And obviously for most Texas fans, there's no one more interesting. There's no more intrigue around the program than there is at the QB position. Obviously you have more impactful guys potentially in B. John Robinson and Xavier Worthy, but Quinn Ewers is the story. How does he do maybe this first game against or the University of Louisiana Monroe is not going to tell us a lot about Quinn Ewers. I mean, he's he's a story. How does he look? What's what's he going to do? So, I, I guess with that, what what are your expectations for Quinn this year? My expectations are that he's going to throw some really incredible passes, and he's going to throw some really not incredible passes. <laughs> I you know I think the kid's a gunslinger. I think he's young. I think part of a quarterback's development is finding your limits. I think that's especially true for guys that are uber talented. Uh, and especially if they haven't played a game, you know, in like a year and then they were previously injured before that. So it's, I do have high expectations for overall progression throughout the season, but I think that there's definitely going to be, there's going to be some growing pains where he tests his own limits. You know, can he fit balls in a certain windows 
or just learning, you know, you talk about ULM. If you have a guy that like a receiver with a certain amount of space against ULM, you can put the ball there, but against Bama, you know, the athletes that Bama has in the secondary, that might be a pick. So I, I think it's going to be a little bit up and down. It wouldn't surprise me if the dude throws like three plus touchdowns a game, but then has like 10 interceptions on the year. I think that we're all going to be really impressed, but uh, certainly not. Like, I don't think he's going to be like a Heisman candidate or um, one of those quarterbacks that you just lean on game in and game out and know that he's going to come through and hit all the throws. Like he'll have some misses here and there. Well, let's hope you're wrong about that last part. And he does because become a Heisman candidate. Because if so, that means a lot of good things happen for the Texas offense and Texas overall. One player that's really bouncing back, you sort of mentioned injuries to, to Quinn Ewers, keeping him from playing a lot. Last year, we saw him be really effective while he was healthy but as the story has been unfortunately his entire time on campus we can't seem to keep him on the field the entire season but Jordan Whittington obviously back one more year probably the last year in Austin I I guess what are your expectations there do we have does he get to be that third down sort of machine that he was while he was healthy last year what kind of pressure does he take off Xavier Worthy is I think the biggest thing I think I would expect him to be you know that that third down guy that consistently moved the chains uh, I think that he's a good number two. Uh, I don't think Whittington's like a superstar or like a bona fide elite college football receiver, but I think he could definitely be really good for us. You mentioned taking pressure off Worthy, especially with likely going to be seeing a lot of 12 personnel. I think that number two receiver, you got to have somebody that can make plays with the ball in their hands, somebody that can stretch the defense a little bit more than what you might be doing with your tight ends, make them respect the entire field. Uh, which which Sark is good at, so I'm not I'm not concerned at all about that. But yeah, I expect I'd expect Whittington to have a pretty good year. I'm trying to come up with a good comparison of like a recent wide receiver season at Texas. I can't quite place it. Do you got anything? John Harris. You you spend all this time toiling away and you finally just get that opportunity and you really make the best of it. Put together one full season from Jordan Whittington. Yeah, maybe he's not going to be a Blitnikoff winner, but I think it's going to show, like, man, what what has Texas been missing out on all these years with him being hurt? I think that would be great. I'm looking up Harris's stats here. So what, what did we get from senior year Harris? Yeah, I don't know. I think if we can get, what, like 700 yards, six-plus touchdowns, that's, like, pretty good production. Because, um, well, the next guy that we have on the list here that we're going to talk about is Jatavian Sanders. And, you know, I'm expecting he and – that he'll make a pretty big impact along with Billingsley and the tight ends. So I don't know that Whittington's going to put up like massive stats, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a massive role to play. Just to give you a, I I did get sports reference to actually pull up John Harris's senior year stats. So through his freshman, sophomore and junior years, John Harris had a total of nine catches totaling shy of 200 total yards. 2014, Charlie's first year, remembering Charlie's first year, Tyrone swoops throwing the ball Mm -hmm. for the vast majority of it. 13 games played, 68 receptions, 1,051 yards, and seven touchdowns for John Harris. Yeah, I mean, that would be phenomenal, right? Considering how much I think we're going to be running the ball, how much tight ends are probably going to be involved in the pass game, that would be an awesome year for Jay Witt. But you mentioned Jatavian Sanders, him really sort of as a sort of the analog, I guess, for the entire tight end room, which I think is a little bit reformed after last year, Cade Brewer, but Jatavian Sanders the former five-star, not really in a position where Sark has taken a ton of advantage in the past. He's, he's never been a huge, huge guy to, to rely on tight ends. But when you have a guy as talented as Jatavian Sanders is just on a completely raw athleticism level, 
you got to figure he's going to have an impact on how this offense runs. I think he will. And I think that even at Bama, whenever they had all those first round receivers, Sark still ran a lot of 12 personnel and they might not have put up crazy stats, but you know, Billingsley had a role as more of the receiving threat. Uh, can't remember the, the inline blocking tight ends name, but you know, Sanders would play that role, except be more of a gifted receiver than that guy was at Bama. I think it says a lot that they went out and they got Billingsley and he never really threatened Sanders that much that I can remember. You know, Sanders had a really good spring and kind of locked in the job. And that was kind of the reporting, like pretty consistent. There wasn't as much of like you hear on the offensive line about these battles, like right tackle, whatever. You didn't hear a whole lot of that at tight end, which to me with Billingsley being like a flawed player, that's really good at receiving, but not as good at other parts of the game. I think that that does kind of show that, Sanders hopefully made a leap that should be an indicator there I think yeah he's he's absolutely a game changer all of every Texas fan saw those highlights of Jatavian Sanders in high school you know the one-handed grabs the interception while he was playing defensive end in the state championship game all that type of stuff so I think it's sort of one of those ones where Texas fans want to have a great tight end. It's been a while since we had a true difference maker we've had very consistent guys guys like you know your Jeff Swames and your Andrew Becks, who were reliable, but maybe not terrifying to opposing defenses. Jatavian Sanders is that guy who could be that level of good. And I, I think that amount of potential is not something a lot of Texas fans have seen in a long time at the tight end position. I think so, too. And I think that we also want him to bring some of that, right? Because Andrew Beck wasn't, like you're saying, he's not a big receiving threat. But he was really good for our offense in terms of being able to block. Um and so I'm hoping that's kind of what separated him from Billingsley. Because if Sanders was still just that high school wide receiver, then there would have been more of a competition with Billingsley, right? Because that's what he is. So the hope is, um, and I am drinking the Kool-Aid here a little bit. You know, we'll get into season predictions later, but I'm drinking the Kool-Aid a bit. The hope is that Sanders solidified that job because of how well-rounded he's going to be. Um, and I think that, like you're talking about, some of that big play ability uh, probably should carry through from high school. So the the final offensive player that we're going to talk about, sort of the man, the myth, the legend, Colonel Mustard himself, B. John Robinson, that dude. Certainly a known quantity, but I guess really at this point, it's not a question of if he's going to score, if he's going to have a big impact on this offense. It's sort of quantifying exactly how big an impact he has on his on this offense. How many rushing yards, how many all-purpose yards, how many touchdowns in general. And with the running back room that's behind him, exactly how much time he spends on the field just because there's there's so many people behind him who can give him a break and still have this offense be effective. Yep, and that's been the question for years at Texas, right? Going back to Herman, always playing close games. It was can we get can we count on a couple guys to like pound the rock, be our starters, be our, you know, game managers or uh game changers, and then can we get them off the field? in the third and fourth quarter at times so that we can get the young guys some experience. And we haven't had that much for the last five plus years. So I'm hoping that he puts up big numbers, but I am hoping that, you know, we can keep him fresh. We can keep him healthy. Uh, we don't need to have him on the field all the time. Cause we do have guys that can come in and substitute and at, along the same vein, like we can also move him around. We can line him up in the slot. We can line him up at receiver and not expect a whole lot of drop off uh, from the other guys in the rotation at running back. So I don't know that I could give you exact numbers. You know, I think I think we can hope that he approaches 2,000 yards and, I don't know, 15-plus touchdowns. Uh, I think that's definitely in play, especially for having a good year. 
but there's a lot of factors that kind of go into what's actually achievable. All right. So I, I guess the big question, given that Bijan is obviously the guy that every Texas fan has circled as the big star on this team, how disappointed would you end up being knowing how good Bijan has been? How disappointed would you end up being if Bijan does not at least get invited to New York this year? How much how much do you feel like we would have wasted Bijan Robinson if we couldn't at least put him on stage for the Heisman ceremony any of the years that he's at Texas? Not too bad, if I'm being completely honest. I mean, it would suck. Like like it did suck, but compared to the other pain that we've felt over the years as Texas fans, I don't <laughs> think it ranks that highly, right? Like we already went through that with Sam and like there's been a ton of guys that have come through the program and we haven't been able to do our part. Uh so so I don't know. That's Maybe you feel differently, but... I mean, I, I think it would definitely be disappointing if Bijan Robinson, we see when he is on the field, he is that level of good. Uh, all respect to Sam, Sam did not have the absolutely batshit insane athleticism that Bijan Robinson has. Like, I'm pretty sure if Sam Ellinger takes the hit that Bijan took his freshman year against Texas Tech and does the full Scorpion thing, Sam probably is not bouncing back. Well, Sam would have just run over the guy, so... It's true. Sam would not have attempted to jump the guy who went to run through him, for yeah. sure. But, I mean, Sam, as great as he was, I don't think anyone with any real seriousness would have put him in, in true Heisman consideration. We wanted to see him develop into that. Whereas Bijan Robinson, it's felt like, basically from the word go, you saw those flashes and you were like, yeah, this guy is absolutely a guy who, who can and should win a Heisman this year. And if he doesn't get the Heisman, I think people are going to be very upset if he's not absolutely 100% in the conversation for the Doak Walker. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, I think it'd be sad, but like compared to everything else we've been through, plus if he's not there, that, that like we could have a great season and Bijan still doesn't get invited to New York, right? Like, I think there are a ton of really good Heisman candidates this year. You got like three different guys from Ohio State. You have the returning winner in Bryce Young. You got, I don't know, Jordan Addison at USC. Like, let's see what Lincoln Riley does with him, right? There's, there's a bunch of different guys that could be, so as much as it would suck, like we're no strangers to sending off players without them having the accolades that we would have wanted. And Sam, like, sure, he was never like by midseason. I should say he was never like a serious Heisman contender, but like it still sucks that what his we sent him off in the Alamo Bowl, and so that, that's more what I was getting at. Is uh, I don't think we can take that too personally. I can't for my own mental health. Let me throw let me throw one more player. Just to sort of keep you on your toes here, one more offensive player that I didn't put on our note sheet, um, but a guy that's going to be very, very interesting and very, very critical to the success of your Quinn Ewers and your Bijan Robinsons of this football team. Uh, and that's going to be Kelvin Banks. True freshman. Looks like he's going to be the starting left tackle. ULM, he should be fine against ULM, hopefully. If he, if he is everything that we've heard he's supposed to be. Then he gets to get sort of baptized by fire. Thrown to the wolves, Alabama, you know, Will Anderson and company bearing down on you every single snap. What are the expectations for Kelvin Banks this year? It's a really good question, Josh. <laughs> the, the, I think the, the expectations have got to be, like, adequate play, right? Like, I think minimum expectations should be, like, Christian Jones level last year. And I think that that's a... I think it's a reasonable expectation because Christian Jones is still on the roster. So if Kelvin Banks wasn't as good as Christian Jones was last year, we could just be playing Christian Jones at left tackle and put Kelvin at right or 
you know, there's a million different variations of the line we could go in. So I, I think that, you know, if Jones was like a 3.5 or 4 out of 10 last year, that banks were open for like average level play, like five, maybe six. Um, I mean, we're hoping for better, right? But like, I think that's reasonable just based on the fact that we still had the same guy on the roster. We could have kept him there. Well, and we don't know that we didn't keep him there. As you may remember, one Steve Sarkeesian did not release true? a depth chart for before ahead of the game this season or ahead of the game against ULM and may not do it at all this season. I'm not actually upset about that. I'm just making a joke about it. But and result is we technically we, we don't actually know for sure. True. Not until that first snap against ULM will we know where Kelvin Banks lines up relative to Christian Jones. This is this is a good opportunity for a, a public disclosure notice. We've talked about Ewers, Whittington, Sanders, and Robinson, but the only one that we know will be a starter is Ewers. We think Bijan will start, but without the depth chart, how can we know? Right, it's completely impossible. Without it in writing, it, like it's it's a legal document. If it's in writing, then it's binding. But if it's not, then we have no way to be sure. I mean, we yeah. already had John Bianco come out and tell everyone that Steve Sarkeesian picked Quinn Ewers to be our starting quarterback. And that's the only reason we know that is because... John Bianco, as a representative of the university, is legally bound to tell the truth. That's that's in the mm-hmm. Constitution. Yeah. I mean, nobody in our AD has ever lied to a reporter before. Absolutely Shout not. Shout out to uh, Austin American Statesman for running with CDC's Tom Herman as our coach story. <laughs> <laughs> got to stay that lapdog somehow. you got to be the lapdog. And it didn't even work out for him. Chip yeah. Brown is CDC's lapdog after all of that. And then they got really upset with him, and we're like, "What they? Like, he told us." And it's like, "Come on, guys! Like, I'm like, know your know your role here." But Noah, he pinky promised. I know, I know. That's I guess sacred. I guess that's why CDC didn't announce yours is we can't be trusted, so we got to get John Bianco to to take his place as the official conduit. So with all of those players, though, the offense overall, what are what are the expectations? Because obviously, last year we saw a lot of flashes of really good offense. We saw. I think really the only complete game that they put together on offense was against Texas Tech. But we saw the offense be really, really good in the first half of basically every game, not counting Arkansas. So is the expectation the same? Offense is going to be great in the first half and hopefully remember to play the other two quarters? Or where is that line for acceptable play? Because I think at this point, every Texas fan is going to have a complete meltdown if we play really, really well in the first half against Bama and then just go back into our hole and completely go into hibernation the rest of the game. Right. I don't, I don't know how much more of that we could take for sure, but it's, it's hard to put a pin on it because of all the youth, right? Um, you got Bijan, you got Whittington and you got majors. And those are like your only upperclassmen starters, right? I mean, Roshan is basically like, you know, he's a big part of the offense too, but I just, I don't know that we should expect that much improvement over last year. Um, like I, I certainly do expect improvement, but I'm not expecting us to be like a top tier offense. You know, some people throw out like 50 points per game. Like that's not happening. Like elite offenses don't even do that. Right. So I guess give me like maybe a couple extra points per game. I do think the running offense is going to be a really solid foundation. You know, I'm expecting top 20 run rush offense in the country. I think last year we were like 30 or 40, something like that. So I think we'll be a little bit more consistent there. That's generally a little bit easier to execute on and be coordinated for a young offensive line and pass protection. And it sets a good baseline. I, you know, we might struggle with some of the other like just consistency and game management parts, but 
I think that's pretty good baseline to have fallback on um, and still put up generally good numbers. All right, here's here's a real question. Since we actually have one absolutely 100% reliable data point to go off of now, we saw in week zero Casey Thompson basically revert to the same Casey Thompson that we saw last season at, Nor- at Nebraska uh, playing Northwestern out in Dublin, Ireland. Played really well on that first drive. Looked absolutely outstanding that first drive. Looked pretty good the rest of the first half. And then the second half was, frankly, abysmal. So how much of those struggles that we saw last year are on Casey Thompson as opposed to the offense as a whole? Hey, Josh, we, we already established at the start of the show. No hot takes. He's not on the Texas team anymore. We can blast him all we want. This is true. Uh, no, I mean, it's a little bit of both, right? But um, it, the collapse wasn't just on Casey yesterday or this past weekend. You know, there was the onside kick, uh, the interceptions. Like, one of them was a pretty bad ball, but still, like, technically the receiver got a hand on it. The other one was more just like a drop. So it's it's always hard to decide, right? And I don't think that Casey helped our second half struggles, but I don't think we can blame him unless you're – is that where you're going, Josh? Is that what you're – I mean, uh, I, I I was fully willing to say we've gotten the, we've gotten it, the, uh, the curse lifted. Uh, Casey took that with him to Nebraska. Never mind the fact that Nebraska consistently did that exact same shit all of last year, and that's why they the, uh, got to be a meme as the best 3-9 and nine team in college football history. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that he took some of that with him. I'm hopeful that a guy like Quinn Ewers has such a short memory that mistakes in the second half don't snowball like they seem to do with Casey. So, yeah, I, I think it's promising that we'll be playing better in the second half just based on a, a quarterback change, especially to a guy like Quinn Ewers who's got that deep ball that can really open up the offense. That that was the one thing, really, that Casey could not consistently hit was that deep ball. That is very true. It was it was rough just overall, our, our deep passing attack last year. So I think a lot of the second quarter stuff is just going to be more about Sark. I think it's going to be about how he's able to adjust, how he's able to manage the team's mentality. I think some of that was like, effort like I don't think that you saw as many as much as many displays of just flat out poor effort on offense as we did on defense last year but you know staying focused and all that stuff is still important so so we'll see give me I don't know give me like a measurable improvement on offense you know maybe from 35 points a game to 37 points a game um but ultimately not the kind of offense where you know, like the Oklahoma offenses where they were just winning games with absolutely no defense. I don't think we're getting to that point. All right. And then on the other side of the ball, obviously on defense, it's going to be a real point of interest for a lot of Texas fans just because of how really poor the defense was last season. I think that w- that obviously caused a lot of problems for Texas fans. Watching them get gassed, watching the depth sort of fall apart after Jacoby Jones went out, just sort of watching us be unable to contain and and really set the edge or anything for the defense. So a lot of guys going to need to make a big impact for this defense to take a step forward and become better than really, 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 really terrible like they were last year as a unit. It's a low bar, but, you know, somehow that's that's where we're at. You know, I think that you're kind of getting at some of the th- key things is we do need guys to take a step, and that step doesn't necessarily have to be going from, like, they don't have to be a great player at the end of that step. They just need to be able to do their job, and then, like, on that no, like their jobs need to be clearly defined. They need to be playing together. They need to know what they're doing. And that's more on the coaching staff. Um, 
So having a mediocre or average defense is totally doable. We have the talent to do that. Like I realize that, you know, I think people are a little bit more down on our talent as compared to the offense, especially because on this offense we do have all these studs, whereas defense we don't. Um, but you don't need to, you don't need to have Georgia's defense last year to be average, right? Uh, and that's what we're looking for here. Speaking of a guy, uh, just since you talked about having a clearly defined role and all of that stuff, is a guy whose role, at least as far as Texas fans are concerned, is not going to be super clearly defined. A guy who's going to play all over the field, DeMarvion Overshone, a little bit of playing sort of strong side linebacker, a little bit of playing the edge, will probably play some nickel stuff, cover some tight ends, going to be doing sort of the jack-of-all-trades position for this Texas defense. And that's something that we've actually seen Overshone do earlier in his career. Like back when he was a freshman or a sophomore, he did it more as like a box safety, but he looked good and showed, you know, potential just being able to play in space uh, in a non-traditional linebacker role. So so I don't know what PK's got drawn up for him, and that's going to kind of be the key is that we don't really know what to expect, and hopefully opposing offenses won't know what to expect. But the defense, <laughs> right, they need to know what to expect. Like Overshone needs to know what he's doing. The rest of the defense needs to know how to play around it. But I think there is some potential there. Yeah, and I think the emergence of a guy like a Jalen Ford or perhaps even the uh, FCS transfer there, what was it from James Madison, Diamante Tucker, Dorsey, if those guys can play to the level that we've sort of heard rumblings about through fall practice and spring practice, if they can have an impact and allow DMO to not have to just be behind the line and play this sort of jack-of-all-trades role, that's really going to open up the defense and allow him to be that playmaker like you talked about. Another guy who's going to have a big impact, played really well actually last year. I think one of the few bright spots on this defense and still is going through sort of a position change. Played nickel last season, going to be playing more true safety this season. That's Anthony Cook. And I like Cook. I think that he has been pretty steady for us. Um, you know, he's not a superstar by any means, but there were times when he certainly played like it at the beginning of last year and looked really good. And he's flexible, and I think he's reliable. That's probably why they moved him back there is because PK did not trust the safeties last year, which is totally understandable given the starting combo of B.J. Foster and a converted Brennan Schooler, who actually did make the Patriots' final roster as a special teams player, but <laughs> it's kind of neither here nor there. It didn't help us out last year. Um, so he just needed some guys back there that he can trust to know the defense, to not get beat deep, to be able to provide the correct help to the corners. And so I think Cook is that guy. And I think that we can count on him to at least be, like, decent, right? And if he had, like, a Chris Brown type year, like, I think that would be awesome. Yeah, I think of all the players on this defense, he is the most known quantity. We know he can be reliable. And last season, it seemed like his floor was as a good player. A good player with flashes of great rather than a lot of the defensive players where we saw flashes of flashes of good or great but also a, a much lower floor. The, the lows were much lower with a lot of the defense last year. So if a guy can like Anthony Cook can be a steadying force, especially in a position as critical to PK's defense as safety is, that's also going to help open everything up. You're, you're going to have better coverage, and theoretically, depending on how this defensive line and how the edge sort of pieces itself together, you're going to have better pass rushing, hopefully. It's hard to have worse pass rushing than we did after the Oklahoma game once Jacoby Jones is out. So a, a guy like perhaps a Byron Murphy or an Alfred Collins, those two guys, of course, Sark today just sort of talked about how uh, Alfred Collins is going to be out for the ULM game for sort of an undisclosed injury or something to that effect. But those two guys uh, are at different stages in their career but could both have a massive impact on how this pass rush comes together. 
And the similarities between them are kind of eerie, except Collins was a much more known quantity coming out of high school. Like as a freshman, he was pretty hyped. I don't know if he actually finished his composite five-star, but he was in that range. Murphy wasn't. Um, and then Collins flashed, you know, really in the bowl games, it seems like he always <laughs> has a big performance. Uh, I think it was Colorado as a freshman where he, well, actually I say the bowl game <laughs> where he's like stretched back and, you know, had the interception. Um, but he just hasn't built on that. Whereas that's what we're hoping to see from Murphy is he flashed a lot of the same things that Collins did, but we're hoping that he can build on it. The tough thing for Collins and the reason that I really am thinking of him is found money this year and I'm not actually counting on him for any production is that he's going to have to earn his snaps back. Like, like he's coming off the injury. He hasn't been practicing the last week or so the defensive line interior defensive line isn't great, but there's at least talent there and there's depth there. So the guy, the only guy that I think has 100% like carved out himself as a priority for snaps is Murphy. And then you have sweat Ojomo, uh, Coburn and some of the other freshmen, they're all going to be fighting for snap, mainly those those first three. But the freshmen will want to play occasionally. So, you know, how is Collins able to actually separate himself in a crowded room to earn his way on the field? And if he doesn't, if he's not playing consistently, he's just, I don't think he's going to be able to do that. Yeah, and it'd be a real shame because the one thing that we know Alfred Collins, the two things I guess we know that Alfred Collins doesn't lack are size and athleticism. Those are his two biggest tools and it seems like those two things should immediately make a great defensive lineman and it just hasn't come together at least not in any consistent manner so to be able to see them take a big step is going to be huge for the defense overall so what are you really expecting from the defense overall knowing about these role players and these these important pieces that we've just discussed well i'm still a big pk fan um maybe not a big pk fan but i still believe in pete lukowski i think he's a good defense coordinator i don't think he forgot how to coach last year I think he inherited a flawed roster and got a little spooked by that. Uh, so what I'm really expecting is that we're going to see more of a Kwiatkowski-style defense. I think we'll be able to see him return to some of his roots. So I'm expecting more single high safety. I think that you know some of the new air raid guys coming into the conference, he actually historically has done really well against that. So I'm, I'm expecting like a pretty mediocre defense. I, I just don't think the talent is there at some key positions to be consistently good or great but you know having some good performances having some below average performances we should definitely see improvement and you know that's kind of the thing that takes us from like fringe bowl eligibility to approaching at least double digit wins yeah at the very least we should be able to expect our defense will stand up against obviously less talented teams like your kansas's even your texas techs in the, the later part of that game giving up easy scores, blown coverages, that type of thing. If we can tighten those types of things up, go from being a, you know, 90th to 100th in defensive rankings, pull that more into, you know, the 60s and 70s, 50s and 60s, somewhere around there, with the firepower that we're expecting our offense to bring to the table, that's enough to win quite a few games. I mean, we saw a sort of a more extreme version of that with Lincoln Riley's Oklahoma. The defense was always bad to aggressively mediocre, and the offense was a Lincoln Riley Oklahoma offense. So if they can put that together, then, you know, things get brighter for Steve Sarkeesian's outlook this season. Uh, the final side of the ball, obviously going to be the third phase of the game, special teams. Sounds like the punting situation is all but resolved. Isaac Pearson, probably going to be your punter, going back to our very, very loved 
Australian roots. Maybe this one doesn't have a blood relation to, to Dicko like Ryan Bushevsky did. But Cameron Dicker played well there last season. Isaac Pearson sounds like he's going to be a reliable guy. But I think the big story and the thing that a lot of Texas fans are going to be keeping an eye on is the kicking battle that sounds like it's going to stretch into the season between Will Stone and Burt Auburn, where it sounds like it's, you know, hoping not that one guy is going to be better recently, but more that one is going to be less bad. Right. It'll stretch in the season, and it'll also stretch Sark's fourth down playbook, I think. <laughs> I think we're going to see a lot more being in situations where we need to go for it. And, you know, I kind of think that that's probably how you're going to prepare is unless it's inside the 20, you're probably not kicking the field goal. So the, the good news is that I think that we have an offense that is well built to stay with the chains, not fall behind and actually get us into fourth and shorts rather than fourth and long. So if it's third and eight and we're at the 30 yard line, it wouldn't surprise me if we see like a lot more RPOs or runs or wide receiver screens or something, something that'll get you some yards, even if it's not converting all the way. And the honest truth is there's a good chance that we just lose the game this year because of kicking. And that's just kind of how it goes. It's an underappreciated part of the game. And, you know, Dicker had some up and downs, but he always came through whenever we really needed him. You really have to hate it when sort of the structure of your roster more or less forces you to do the statistically smarter thing and go for it on fourth down more often, don't you? Yeah, you really do. Um, which uh, the stats stuff is like a whole other discussion because, you know, sample <laughs> size and everything. But I, so the, I mean, the 2018, 2019 Longhorn teams, right? Like 2018, if you look at their success, it was playing complimentary football. They, whenever the offense struggled, the defense came through a lot of the time. The defense struggled, the offense was able to come through. That obviously didn't happen last year. It would be great if it could happen more this year because that is how you kind of punch above your weight. And then the other thing is that team, was like second best in the country on fourth down, like only behind Army. And a lot of that was just Sam running over linebackers, you know, QB power to the right. Uh, but Sark's got to find probably something like that that he can rely on to be his bread and butter, his go-to this year. Because those two things, especially given the kicking game, that fourth down thing could be a really big deal. Um, and then we saw what happened the next year in 2019 when those two elements didn't translate. So, All right, so moving into the, the team overall, sort of real quick reminder of what the schedule's looking like. Home against Louisiana Monroe, home against currently number one Alabama, home against UTSA, heading to Lubbock potentially for the final time, home against West Virginia, up to Dallas to face the hated Oklahoma Sooners, Iowa State at home. Out to Stillwater to face number 12, Oklahoma State, a bye week. Up to Manhattan, Kansas for K-State, potentially again for the final time. TCU at home, at Kansas, and back home finishing the season with currently number 10, Baylor. I, I think rather than sort of go through this game by game, just for the sake of being slightly more concise, I think we can sort of break this one down into tiers. And if you think about it, it's really five tiers that we're looking at here. Definitely going to win, definitely going to lose, probably going to win, probably going to lose. And then your true toss-ups. So, Noah, I guess, starting from the positive side, who do you think are the definite wins on this schedule? Where are the definite Ws? Right, and it's a little bit tough to say definite wins, you know, given some of our recent history against teams that we definitely should have won. So, but definitely should win, I think, would be, for me personally, ULM, Kansas, UTSA, uh, West Virginia, and Texas Tech. Um, we might disagree a little bit on those. Uh, but one thing that we were kind of talking about earlier is, or like I mentioned, PK and his history against the Air Raid. Look at who some of these teams that we definitely should win higher this year. West Virginia brought in Graham Harrell. 
and JT Daniels, right? Correct. Yeah, JT Daniels, Graham Harrell. Texas Tech brought in Zach Kitley, the guy that put up monstrous numbers at Western Kentucky last year with Bailey Zapp. So, you know, if we're going to actually beat the teams that we definitely should, it's going to require the defense to kind of take a step there. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I agree with most of your your definite wins. I think UTSA will be sort of interesting to see how Jeff Trailer does uh, now that he's lost, you know, Sincere McCormick, uh, what was it, Frank Harris, his quarterback, a few other important parts and pieces. I, I expect UTSA to be good, but maybe not a G5 team that's going to knock us off yet. So I, I, I'll keep that in the definite win. I think the one that I'm sort of on probably win on is definitely West Virginia because of Graham Harrell, because of JT Daniels. I think we got a C, and honestly, given when we're recording, I'll probably have a completely different opinion here in about two hours when I get to see how West Virginia looks against Pitt in the return of the backyard brawl. But I, I personally would have West Virginia in the probably win. Texas Tech definitely, and UTSA sort of borderline, but I'll keep them in the, uh, the definitely win for now. Yeah, I think that's fair. I just... I don't know that I'd buy the JT Daniels hype, uh, but that might just be a, a me problem. I do think, didn't they now have lost both of the Stills? Nope, they have Dante Stills. Never mind. I was going to say it also helps that they don't have the Still brothers. That'll be super nice, but they still have one. So so I guess we're still screwed. Still roaming around over there. All right, on the, on the probable wins, obviously I've sort of shifted West Virginia into there, so that's a spoiler for one of mine. But what do you, what do you have for probable wins this season? So I'm throwing in a couple more conference foes. Uh, I got Kansas State and TCU and Iowa State, personally. Yeah, I, I think that's a good list. Uh, Iowa State as a probable win, just with the loss of, you know, your Brock Purdy's and your Brees Halls. Uh, you still have, what, Charlie Kohler, I think, is still there. Matt Campbell, obviously, still there. How you expect Iowa State to play this year, I think, is entirely dependent on how much you actually buy in on what Matt, Matt Campbell has been building up there in Iowa State. Uh, Kansas State. That one, personally for me, I could slide that to a push just because a lot of people around me have been telling me that I should sort of expect things. Kansas State's a pretty trendy pick as a dark horse to win the Big 12. Uh, TCU, you could almost argue that into the definite wins considering tomorrow night they're going to be playing Colorado. It sounds like Sonny Dykes not only has a two-quarterback battle that he can't decide on, he's got three quarterbacks he can't decide on. So... That level of indecision, sort of a new level of indecision, even compared to the wildness that is Jim Harbaugh up there in Michigan telling two guys that they're each going to start the first two games. Yeah, that, that's a new level of, of confusion, and I'm not sure it's going to come together for Sonny Dykes that quick. Right. It's a tall task for him. Uh, it always is, especially whenever you're replacing a guy with a statue. <laughs> and when that guy we now have on our staff. Uh, <laughs> so we'll have to see. Um only real comment on the three teams is I think that, you know, Kansas State is the most interesting, but we generally are at least pretty good at not getting beat by a single guy, as long as that single guy's name isn't like C.D. Lamb or something. But I, I think we'll be able to at least contain Deuce Vaughn. He might put up 200 yards, but he, I don't think he'll beat us single-handedly. So then we'll move on to basically the permanent fixture, the the always a 50-50 toss-up, it seems like. Doesn't matter if we're great, doesn't matter if they're great, doesn't matter if we're terrible or they're terrible. You head to the Cotton Bowl, things get weird. Uh, the Oklahoma game, that, as far as I'm concerned, the, the permanent toss-up. Absolutely, same for me. Always put them in there. I think that there's a lot of question marks uh, for their offense this year, but you could say the exact same thing about a lot of our roster. So perpetual toss-up. And then the crazy thing about that game is just how violent the momentum swings are inside the cotton bowl i think you know a lot of texas fans have been to a game but 
like last year was like the ultimate example of just how insane it can be like in terms of like the mood differences on one side of the stadium compared to the other. And then one play can completely flip it. So, uh, you know, Venables has coached at OU before. He should know what to expect. I think he'll have him well prepared for the game, but you just never quite know. And that said, we know full well when we come around to looking ahead to that game, uh, that, that actual game week, God knows no one on this podcast will be predicting an OU win. It's hundred percent going to beat the shit out of them every single time. But while we're right near, right here at the beginning of the season with some of the uh, sobriety of distance from the Oklahoma game, I think we can call spade spade and say that one's going to be a toss-up. Probable losses. I imagine you've probably got the two favorites to win the Big 12 this year. Yep, Oklahoma State, Baylor. Just keep it pretty straightforward there. Uh, don't overthink it. That's as easy as it gets. You have the guy at this point. Mike Gundy's got to be the longest tenured coach in the Big 12. And, I, I mean, I think that was true even before this past season. But there's a reason. He's he's reliable. You you know what you're going to get. He's really transformed Oklahoma State from being, you know, that big air raid Brandon Whedon to Justin Blackman type of offense into being a really defensive-heavy team. That Oklahoma State defense has been legit the past few years. So that's going to carry him even with the Spencer Sander experience for yet another year. And then you have Baylor returning a ton of talent, especially along the lines. And I think that one, how legit they are in most people's eyes, really boils down to what you think of Dave Aranda. Right. They just, they both have proven formulas that they can build on from last year. They don't have to change their identities too much. You know, they, they both replace some key parts, but they both return starters in important areas. So that's, I think that's why they are so like, like you can basically count on a certain level of performance for them. And so, I mean, that's why I think they kind of deserve to be the two favorites. Uh, although, you know, it's more than likely we don't actually end up with that matchup in the conference championship game. Yeah, the Big 12, every year people say the Big 12 is rebuilding. Every year it's the Big 12 is going to be down or they're going to be good. And it seems to be unpredictable, especially last year as Oklahoma fails to make it to the Big 12 title game for the first time since we started having it again. But the final one on the schedule, the one game we haven't talked about yet, the one definite loss that we agree on i i don't think i can really convince myself the any given saturday is really going to be any given saturday but not this weekend but next weekend obviously alabama comes to town and i i don't think it's a question of whether we lose it's just how close we manage to keep it come on josh you gotta have some faith here we're uh aren't we trying to not be doomers in this episode i i, I don't think it's a doomer take to say that we're going to lose to arguably the greatest dynasty of the modern era of college football. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my prediction is like a 27 point loss. So like, uh, and that's not even like a doomer prediction. I don't think it's that bad. It's just earlier in the spring, I was kind of thinking like, Oh, you know, we could, we could, we could keep it close. But then the, the big thing is just their defensive. Okay. I think they're, Everybody understands that their defense is going to be good, and the whole the whole Dallas Turner Will Anderson combo is going to be killer. And I think we identified that like I don't know in the second quarter of the Arkansas game last year. We started worrying about that, uh, or anybody <laughs> that I, I'm sure Hudson Carr and Casey Thompson were worrying about that like in Fayetteville, and you know Hudson or uh, Quinn Ewers may have been like Spidey sense or something like a disturbance in the force up in Columbus. He felt something <laughs> coming for him, uh, but. And then just like the offense, they lost so much, but they've replaced it. They've completely reloaded Jameer Gibbs, Jermaine, Jermaine Burton, right, from Georgia, the number one guy there. Mm -hmm. Like They 
yeah, I don't see them slowing down. So, um, you know, give me something like 48, 21, 51, 24, like something around there. And I'm not even going to be that upset by it. Expect, expect it to not go well. And then hope that you get to be there for one of the biggest upsets in college football history. It's one of those games that I think years ago when we first sort of scheduled it, every Texas fan sort of circled that as, okay, by then we will be back to being Texas. And unfortunately, here we are on effectively death's door, and we are not back to where we want to be yet. But maybe this can be a little bit of a measuring stick to see how much further we have to go before we can start to dream that we really are there. Right. And that's right. That's what it should be. Um, and I think a little bit, a little bit of an issue with the, one of the biggest upsets in college football history, because like we're still Texas. So like, right, we have talent. That's not, that's not a question here. And it would absolutely be a huge upset, but it's kind of a sad state of affairs whenever typically those monikers that are held for like the app States or these FCS schools are being used for, Texas as an underdog. So with all that, I mean, you take it five definite wins, three probable wins for you. That basically you're saying eight wins there and then your toss up being OU. So you're somewhere between eight and four, nine and three. I got eight and four. I, I think this is a team that still hasn't shown that they know how to win. It's a program that hasn't shown that. Uh, so I fully expect us to lose a couple of those games that I said we, I, we should win. Um, and I, I think that we'll win at least one, maybe two of the ones that I have as a toss-up or as dogs. So we'll have to see. Uh, but that's I'm at eight and four for the year, with the floor being something like four and eight, and the ceiling being around like ten and two. I don't think either of those are likely. Um, I think ten and two is more likely than not being bowl eligible. Uh, but I think eight and four is a reasonable expectation. And I also think it's a good year. Like I don't think it's just like uh, I guess Sark gets another year. Like I think eight and four is a legitimately like decent step forward, something you can sell on the recruiting trail, uh, you know, keeps the 2022 class together mostly. Um, so I take that. Yeah. That's unquestionably progress. A plus three, even with how close we were on several games last year, a plus three in the win column is absolutely progress. You can build on, especially if the defense does progress from bad to mediocre, especially if the offense does get more consistent, especially if Quinn Ewers looks like, you know, even 60% of the hype he's supposed to have, um, especially if Bijan Robinson has a big year. Those type of things going eight and four is absolutely something you can sell, absolutely something you can build on. But yeah, I, I think for me, since I've got two teams in the uh, the toss up, I think I that puts me sort of seven and five, eight and four. So in the same ballpark, I guess my extremes aren't as big as yours. I think the floor is five and seven again. I think the ceiling is nine and three. Again, as far as that ceiling's concerned, love to be proven wrong. I would absolutely happily eat crow on that one. But yeah, I, th I think eight and four is a pretty realistic take. Not like some of the people I've seen who have called eight and four, you know, a disappointing year or that's the floor or anything like that. Eight and four is absolutely a good year. Eight and four is absolutely progress. No, it's not the end of the road. It's not where we want to be, but it's absolutely a step in the right direction after the way last season went. Right. And I think that one other earlier you were saying eight and four is good, especially because I'll add one more especially note here, but especially how young this team is. You know, how many true freshmen are we going to be starting on offense? Redshirt freshmen, underclassmen, uh, the defense. We're going to have young guys in the rotation at key spots at, you know, defensive end, corner. Uh, so I'm not at all saying this is like the year before the year, because I think whenever you say that, it implies that the year 
like like the second the year there it implies that uh you're going to be good across the board whereas i i still think next year even will be young at certain positions but it's it's a really young team we have like what 50 underclassmen or something like that uh sark has been very aggressive about turning over the roster which i'm super happy about but you know you got to kind of build up it's hard to transform a young team where you're having to like build a new culture in one year so i'd love to see it i just i don't know that we'll get there quite yet all right and before we close out our show here I want to shout out the hot take line very important part of our podcast being able to get some fan engagement we had a really memorable hot take after the arkansas game had a guy call in basically from his car just very emotional really showing the passion that texas fans have arguably an overreaction arguably an underreaction depending on who you ask in the texas fan base but uh, definitely want to have more people call in, really be able to feature those sort of thoughts from the community in more of our episodes moving forward. But that hot take line, 512-677-4578. No one's going to pick up the phone. Feel free to call in, leave us a voicemail, and just, just let us know what you're thinking, especially you know during and after the ULM game. If Quinn Ewers throws for 400 yards and six scores and looks like a hero, even against inferior competition... Give me those overreactions. Is he winning the Heisman? Is he going to be, you know, the Johnny Unitas golden arm guy, even though I think that's an NFL award? <laughs> like, tell me tell me everything you're feeling in that moment and just lay it out all on the table. It doesn't have to be a coherent thought. Hell, half the time, you and I don't have coherent thoughts here, Noah. So just just give us whatever you can. Any Anything that's in your heart, let it out. Share it with us, 512 677 four five seven eight but thank you all for listening to another episode of the fire steve sarkeesian podcast be sure to follow us on twitter at, at the fss podcast for more shitty takes while on the internet also join up with the Hornscast discord server you can interact with us and the hosts of all of the Hornscast channel shows that we've got going on lots of good stuff on there uh be also sure that you follow Hornscast on the podcasting platform that you're listening on right now again to listen to us and every other show on the network as we move into the season. Uh, one more time, hot take line 512-677-4578. Let us know your thoughts during and after the game this weekend. But we will be back to discuss the Longhorns season opener, hopefully a win. Otherwise, we will not be getting back on here if it's that depressing. But until then, hook them.